whose face is bent to earth. Do you avow or disavow this deed? I avow it. I make no denial. Did you know that my edict had forbidden this? I knew. Could I help it? It was public. Did you then dare transgress the law? Yes, for it was not Zeus who had published that edict. Nor did I deem that your decrees were of such force that a mortal could override the unwritten and unfailing statutes of heaven. For their life is not of today or yesterday, but from all time. No one knows when they were first put forth. Not through dread of any human pride could I answer to the gods for breaking these. Die I must, that I knew well without your edicts. For me to meet this doom is trifling grief. But if I had suffered my mother's son to lie in death, an unburied corpse, that would have grieved me. For this I am not grieved. And if my present deeds are foolish in your sight, it may be that a foolish judge arraigns my folly. You're listening to The Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Middle East. I'm your host, Alex. This is my guest. Hi, I'm Annika. And we are currently reading Sophocles' Antigone, which is one of the better-known Greek tragedies. I'm using Richard C. Jebb's translation. This play was written in Athens around 441 BCE. So unlike most of the texts we're reading, this was written in historical time by someone whose name we know. But because it takes place a generation before the Trojan War, it is technically about the Bronze Age, kind of. So the backstory here is that Oedipus had two sons, Eteocles and Polynices, and a couple daughters, including one named Antigone. The brothers agreed to share the throne of Thebes so that each would rule every other year and then alternate. Eteocles ruled first, but he broke his oath and refused to give up his throne. So Polynices raised an army to attack Thebes, and both brothers died in battle. So Creon, the new king of Thebes, decreed that no one would be allowed to perform burial rites for the rebel brother Polynices on pain of death. And we just heard Antigone, who was caught burying her brother Polynices, and we heard her interrogation by King Creon. You know, the idea here is that Polynices has sinned against the two things that Greeks held most dear, which is the patriarchal family household and the state, you know, the city-state, because his brother was the head of the household, which was the royal house of the city-state. They're the same thing. Greek tragedy is all about violating one of those two things, sometimes both, essentially because of that Creon removed Polynices from the human community entirely, so they wouldn't be eligible for even the most basic kindness that humans can offer each other. So, you know, the taboos surrounding death are among the most powerful in any society. You don't want your loved ones sitting around rotting, and of course, you want to pay them some kind of respect. Obviously, funeral rites are different around the world. In the period of Mycenaean Greece, that this play is kind of about, aristocratic families would have been buried in stone family tombs. So Antigone makes a lot of references to, you know, my tomb will be like my marriage bed. You know, my grave will be like my marriage chamber, etc., etc. It's very important to the themes of the play that she's an unmarried woman and that she's going to die before she's married. And relevantly to what this episode is going to be about, for the vast majority of Mesopotamian history, people were buried in single tombs, intact soon after death, which is very similar to the most common form of burial in America. You want to get the body out of the human world as quickly as possible, preferably with a thick layer of dirt between you and the corpse. Yeah, it's interesting also how they kept referring to how she is unmarried, because it shows Mm -hmm. that this choice that she's making to bury her brother is more important than basically continuing the rest of her life and the duties that are expected of her at the time. Right. So it just shows how dedicated she is. In defying King Creon, she's not only defying the king of the state where she lives, but she's also defying the head of the patriarchal family household that is the royal house of Thebes. Yeah, well, and through that defying the patriarch, uh, King Creon, she's also defying the expectations that she has as a woman in this society. By standing up to this and completely altering the way she chose to live her life, she refuses to, I guess, bow down to the expectations that they have of her. Well, and especially because both of these brothers died in battle. 
which was you know, not only an acceptable way for a man to die, but also the most acceptable way for a man to die. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, women are explicitly excluded from that. But, you know, women are also expected to perform these burial rites as kind of a function of being a woman in ancient Greece. Mm -hmm. So the fact that, you know, she is willing to die for performing the duty that everyone, you know, of course, everyone in the audience would have known that that is her, you know, sacred given by the God's duty. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a really good bit in the book Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker, which is a novel about Briseis and Achilles, takes place during the Iliad. Mm-hmm. There's a really good bit about how Briseis is like a slave captured by the Greeks during the Trojan War, but because they are the only women in the Greek camp, they are still expected to perform all the burial rites for the dead Greeks, mm-hmm. even though they're captured from the enemy and people still uh-huh. view them as the enemy, but they still expect them to perform these burial rites because they're the only women there. It's it's a good book and it's a really interesting tension. And plus, like, it's not a very easy job, especially when it is someone that you love so much, you know? You know, to perform these rites and kind of look them in the face and say your final goodbyes, like, it's something very... I can imagine it would be very psychologically hard, you know? Because in our society now, that's not how we normally do it in America. We kind of Mm -hmm. have the bodies taken care of by other people who don't know them. So there's less of that, I don't know, that kind of staring death in the face and that kind of realization that your loved one is truly gone, you know? Right. They're, they're made to be as lifelike as possible in our funeral homes. So it's definitely a very different way of looking at death and um, the way we deal with the dead, which I can imagine could be very traumatic, especially when she's gone through all that and her brother's dead and he's being punished to death because of that. That's one of the universal aspects of human burial rites is the disposing of the body as quickly as possible because you can't really mm-hmm. do anything about the decomposition, decomposition process. Yeah. But also, I mean, the best way to balance that trauma and still finding closure is to, you know, prepare the body for burial or cremation or whatever as soon yeah. as possible so that the face you're looking at still resembles the face of the person you knew. Yeah. So, you know, what Creon is imposing is kind of the ultimate cruelty of having to watch your loved one's face literally decompose until it's a skeleton. At this point in the story, he has been buried improperly. He has not had a problem burial and how long has it been in this case i don't actually know how long it's been more than a couple days somewhere around a couple days i think okay yeah he's lying outside the limits of the city like he's not allowed to be brought inside the city for burial and no one's allowed to go out to process his body Mm -hmm. burying your loved one after their death is the most basic human kindness that everybody has offered um so to have this not be allowed for him is something that she believes like are within not only her rights but her her duties as a sister and as somebody who lives under the law of these gods like that's that's something that their society has been built around and another reason why i love this play is because it explicitly brings up and then rejects the idea that there is such thing as a crime so grievous that the person who commits it should no longer be treated like a human yeah you know because creon's logic is of course you know polynices sinned against the institutions that humans hold the most dear therefore we should no longer treat him like a human Mm -hmm. and of course you know antigone and also the play as a whole rejects that idea Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I think is very relevant to the way that America treats, you know, homeless people and criminals and people in prison yeah. who are wrongfully convicted. Yeah. And so on. Yeah. And also with the way that she brings the gods into the conversation, it gives a more, uni- I don't know, universal, but a more bird's eye view on what humans are and how the gods laws apply to everybody. It's not just in the eyes of one king and one ruling and one human opinion. There are universal laws that guide all of them. So to bring the gods right. who are very important to the society into question, she kind of says like, is he not human? How can you as a human make this judgment against another human? when there are greater laws that bind us. So their conversation continues. How could I have won a nobler glory than by giving burial to my own brother? All here would own that they thought it just, if their lips are not sealed by fear. Royalty, blessed in so much besides, has the power to do and say what it will. 
In that view, you differ from all these Thebans. They also share it, but they curb their tongues for you. And you are not ashamed to act apart from them? No, there is nothing shameful in piety to a brother. Was it not a brother, too, that died in the opposite cause? Brother by the same mother and the same sire. Why, then, do you render a grace that is impious in his sight? The dead man will not say that he deems it so. Yes, if you make him but equal in honor with the wicked. It was his brother, not his slave, that perished. Pillaging this land while he fell as its champion. Nevertheless, Hades desires these rights. But the good do not desire a like portion with the evil. Who can be sure that this is not piety in the world below? The enemy can never be a friend, even in death. It is not my nature to join in hating, but only in loving. Pass then to the world of the dead, and if you need love, love them. So Antigone gets sentenced to death. She and the chorus sing a lament, and then Creon interrupts their lamenting. He says, Know you not that songs and wailings before death would never cease if it profited to utter them? Tomb, bridal chamber, eternal prison, in the caverned rock where I go to find my own. Those many who have perished and whom Persephone has received among the dead. What law of heaven have I transgressed? Why, unhappy me, should I look to the gods any more? What ally should I invoke, when by piety I have earned the name of the impious? Nay, then, if these things are pleasing to the gods, when I have suffered my doom, I shall come to know my sin. But if the sin is with my judges, I could wish them no fuller measure of evil. So these are her last words. O city of my fathers in the land of Thebes, O ye gods, eldest of our race, they are leading me hence now, they tarry not. Behold me, princess of Thebes, the last daughter of your house of kings, see what I suffer and from whom, because I fear to cast away the fear of heaven. So today we'll be looking at Tel Brak, which is a city in the Habor Plain of northeastern Syria. It is on the Jog Jog River, which is a tributary of the Habor, which itself is a tributary of the Euphrates. It was definitely the world's biggest settlement in the early 3000s BCE. Here we see kind of the middle steps towards the development of writing and some particularly unsettling mass graves. Tel Brak is near modern Hasaka, and in the third millennium, Tel Brak would be the capital of the Kingdom of Nagar. So it's likely that even during this period, the city was called Nagar. But because that's one of those names that you really have to enunciate clearly, I'm going to be calling it Tel Brak. So in the first half of the 3000s BC, Tel Brak grew to about 130 hectares, making it the biggest city in the world. It would later be eclipsed by Unug in the south, which of course we'll get to. So Brak may have been the first true city before it was discovered. It was assumed that southern Mesopotamia was home to the first cities like Unug. But Tel Brak met all of the criteria of a city 500 years earlier than cities like Unug. So insofar as there can be a first city, it's likely that it was Brak. Some of these hallmarks of the city or the state and or the city-state include monumental architecture, long-distance trade, craft specialization, and powerful religious institutions, all of which were present at Tel Brak. We also have good evidence here for continuous occupation, even better than that at Unug. So here we can trace the entire fourth millennium, which we are not able to do in the south. So to start with geography, the Chabur River, like I said, is a tributary of the Euphrates. On a map, it looks kind of like a tree with a lot of branches on the top and a single trunk, which is the Habor River itself, that flows southwards to the Euphrates. There also happens to be a separate Habor River that flows into the Tigris. These are completely separate rivers, and I'll never mention the Tigris one ever again. It rains more in the upper reaches of the Habor River system, enough for rain-fed agriculture. So the upper Habor was among the most fertile regions in Syria, hence all of the water flowing out of it. So it was on the edge of the Fertile Crescent, or the dry farming region of Mesopotamia. Today it rains about 250 to 300 millimeters a year there, so crops there today are likely to fail about once every 10 years. Farmers in the region rely on pumps, and even so, the crops failed three times between 2000 and 2010. But during the period we're looking at today, the rainfall per year might have been more in the 300 to 500 millimeter range. 
which would be comfortable for dry farming. So the earliest object known from Telbrock is a crescent-shaped piece of obsidian from long before the Pottery Neolithic. This was probably originally embedded in a clay brick. In other words, people dug up dirt from much earlier deposits to use for bricks during the heyday of Telbrock. And then those bricks decomposed, leaving whatever happened to be in the dirt that they dug up in later levels. The earliest datable material we have is from around 6000 BCE. We have both Samarin and Halaf pottery here, those being two pottery styles in the Pottery Neolithic that we looked at in episodes 7 through 9. Ubayid pottery first shows up in the late 5000s. The earliest Ubayid pottery at Talbrak is unique in the north. This is evidence of long-distance trade, and it shows that Brak was already more than just some village. The northern Ubayid ended around 4500 BCE. The next period in the north is called the Late Calcolithic, stretching from about 4,500 to 3,000, so in other words, the rest of season two. The most common cereals found at Talbrock were hold emmer and two-row hold barley, so hold grains are easier to store long-term. This is the same reason they evolved in the wild in the first place, because they need to spend a long time outside soil, but still be able to grow in good conditions when they get to good soil. So earlier in the Neolithic, we saw people breed free threshing wheat, in other words, wheat where the hole or the seed coat breaks off during the threshing process, so they don't need to remove it manually during processing. But here they are using the older style, possibly because, like its wild form, it needs to be stored for a long period of time. Other crops we see are durum or free threshing wheat, in other words, wheat without the seed coat. We also see lentils, chickpeas, and flax, as well as figs, watermelons, hackberries, and jujubes. Like most of the north at this point, their main animals were cattle for traction and milk, and pigs for meat. They don't seem to have relied much on wool in the earlier periods. So the first phase we're looking at here is the late Calcolithic I period, also called the Terminal Ubaid period, lasting from about 4,500 to 4,200. During this phase, Telbrak had closer cultural connections to the rest of Syria to the west than it did to the rest of Mesopotamia to the east. The climate here got wetter, the grasslands were gradually replaced with oak forests, lakes expanded, and because of this, dry agriculture could support a larger population, because of course they could grow more food with the amount of rain they had. So there were different types of mass-produced bulls in different parts of the Habor Valley. So even though, as we saw at the end of the Ubayid, parts of the north are starting their own separate cultures, this is part of a region-wide trend towards more standardized labor practices. So even if they're making pottery differently, including how they make their mass-produced bulls, the fact that they're all mass-producing these similar cheap bulls might indicate that they have similar modes of labor organization. In other words, these might be rations for manual laborers. So in this earliest phase, Telbrak only has Joba bulls, which we introduced in episode 15. This is the same type as we've found in other sites in Syria, and different from the wide flower pot found at Gaura and Hamukar to the east. Unlike other Joba bulls, the early examples at Telbrak are well made and finished on a slow wheel. So in other words, people were investing time and effort into these as if they expected to use them for regular pot stuff, instead of just as disposable objects. But as time goes on, they're made in greater volume and made much more hastily, so people care less and less about the finished result as long as it holds objects to transport. Also, during this phase, we see the first eye idols. Joan Oates, in a 2012 article, calls them quote-unquote spectacle idols. These are stylized human figures with two big eyes. They'll be much more common later, and we'll talk about them. In stamp seal art, we see a scene of a wild ass and a baby ass, as well as a lion killing a gazelle while a vulture waits above. So our next phase is the elite Calcolithic II period, stretching from about 4,200 to 3,900. During this period, Telbrock is about 50 hectares, with a population of about 7,000 people. So the population is expanding rapidly. We have more people in a bigger city. The population here is already double what Eridu reached at any point during the Ubayid period. So at this point, Telbrak was surrounded by satellite settlements. In other words, sites connected to Brock's urban economy. These settlements ranged from one to four hectares, so the size of an average village in the region. During this period, we see new types of seal art, possibly to glorify a leader. We see one of the earliest pairings of humans and lions in seal art. Also, towards the end of this phase, we have elite pottery, similar to that found at Gaura and Hamugar. So the cultural focus appears to be shifting from Syria in the west to Mesopotamia in the east. 
both in terms of elite feasting and in terms of rations for manual laborers. So one of the monumental buildings at Telbrock is called the Basalt Threshold Building. In 2005, Joan Oates wrote that this had a, quote, major entrance with walls a meter and a half thick, and within the wide doorway, a vast threshold stone consisting of a single piece of basalt, end quote. This piece of basalt is six feet tall, five feet wide, and one foot thick. So this building is different from most clearly ritual buildings in that it had a door in the corner, whereas most ritual buildings were completely symmetrical. It had a large hearth in one room, but otherwise it was unclear what it was used for. Right next door, as in literally adjacent to that wall, we see a series of small rooms, including a guard room. Oates says the rest were similar to, quote, the facilities one finds outside government offices in the Near East today. A series of desks at which letter writers and other clerks provide services for the benefit of those having business in the building itself, end quote. Nearby was a craft area with ovens, so it was clearly already administrative complex, with space not only for record keeping, but also for economic production. This whole complex was much larger than comparable administrative centers elsewhere in the north, and they made products like pottery, textiles, and lots of tools made of both bone and groundstone, as well as luxury goods. In a 2011 article by Augusta McMahon and colleagues, they write that they also produced, quote, obsidian beads and inlays, shell inlays, and an elaborate obsidian and marble chalice, end quote. Speaking of crafts, this is when the first wide flower pots show up at Brock. This is the type of mass-produced bowl that was seen at Gaura and Hamukar in earlier periods. So I already mentioned eye idols, which are small, schematic human figurines, about three to eight centimeters tall. They're carved in local limestone. They're a small, flat body with two big eyes, and they're sometimes found in pairs or triples, sometimes with a child, and sometimes with a pointy hat. And starting around 4200 BCE, these start to appear in large numbers. We found thousands of them in the Eye Temple, which we'll talk about next episode. So this may have been a cheap, available gift given to the temple by all classes, you know, an accessible form of worship, because they could have been made fairly cheaply. This may indicate that worship at the temple was available to lots of types of people, maybe everyone. These eye idols were often found mixed in with bricks and mortar, so part of a deposit ritual, the idea being that gifts offered by earlier generations are incorporated into the building itself to preserve whatever kind of good effect that had on the world. Also found in these ritual deposits are stamp seal amulets, which indicates that these idols probably represented specific people. So based on parallels from later periods of Mesopotamian history, these idols may have represented either an individual donor or a couple or family. The eyes are sometimes filled with black material, possibly to emphasize a devotee constantly looking at and praying to God, or maybe a family god praying on their behalf. Because of regular continuous interactions across northern Mesopotamia, including trade and obsidian, these eye idols became common across Syria and Anatolia. And they're similar to more elaborate votive statues found in later Mesopotamia during the 2000s. These are explicitly described as gifts to gods. And these later votive statues also have exaggerated staring eyes. For example, those found at Eshnuna later on. So our next period is the late Calcolithic III period, about 3900 to 3600 BCE. This is the heyday of Telbrock. They still have lots of eye idols, and we'll look at evidence they may have had their own proto-writing system 500 years before Unug. This is as wet as the climate gets during this period. We have large forests, mostly of oak trees, but also pine and pistachio. Pistachio trees get less common as the period goes on, possibly because the climate is too wet for them. Because of all this rain, dry agriculture can support more people than ever before. The satellite sites ringing the main city get larger and more numerous, and over time, the empty space between them and the city is filled in, creating one massive city instead of a town surrounded by villages. During this period, the city will reach its peak of 130 hectares, and a population somewhere between 17,000 and 24,000 people. So we are four to six times bigger than Eridu ever got during the Ubaid period. At the same time, the population of the surrounding area decreases. So within a three-kilometer radius around Tel Brak, everyone else either left or moved to Brak proper, and there are very few people living between three and eight kilometers away. So essentially, as Tel Brak becomes bigger, it clears out an entire ring around it, 
up to eight kilometers away, or five-ish miles. And the nearest major cluster of sites is on the other side of the Jogjog River. So we have one public building, possibly a temple, around 3800 BCE. This is around the same time as the first Uruk pottery appearing in the north, which we'll get to next episode. This temple has a reception hall with a tripartite plan. It has decorative niches in the facade, which are a feature of public buildings, both in the north and in the south. It's built in the same area as the earlier basalt threshold building. So as before, this temple complex is made up of a main building, combined with associated workshops and storage areas. In workshops, we have evidence of centralized industrial manufacturing. So throughout the 3000 BCE, sheep make up about 90% of animal bones at Brock. So textiles were clearly a very important industry. This area also had fire installations, like domed ovens, grills, and open hearths. These were periodically rebuilt and replaced. We see similar ovens at nearby Tel Hamukar. So these were used for cooking meat, mostly beef and mutton, sometimes river fish, and to quote Joan Oates. Also, quote, pig, gazelle, fox, hare, birds, and either dog or jackal, end quote. Smaller animals were baked intact, whereas large animals were butchered elsewhere, with the meteor bits brought to this kitchen area. They also mass-produced flat plates, which make up 70% of pottery in this cooking area. These were apparently used as cheap and disposable cooking trays. So all of this indicates that feasting was important to the role of the temple. Just like at Gerbekli Tepe, we have a huge amount of meat at an area where people would have gathered for certain events. All of this would have reified the social power of the political institution. In a nearby horde, we see two stamp amulets, no stamp seals worn as amulets, similar to those found in the Eye Temple, as well as about 350 beads made of carnelian, gold, silver, lapis lazuli, rock crystal, and amethyst. Also, we have some of the oldest silver objects recorded, probably made of silver procured from Anatolia, which also attests to Telbrock's role as a long-distance trade node. A different tripartite building is also decorated with buttresses and recesses, which again is used to decorate public buildings in both the north and the south. It also has a stone fruit stand, ivory objects shaped like pen holders, and a large bead made from gold sheet metal, as well as what Joan Oates calls, quote, a charming alabaster bear, end quote. Also, here we have the only eye idols found in their original context that is not included in later foundation deposits for the eye temple. Speaking of which, this is the period when the eye temple is built. This is where we see all these eye idols come from, more on that later. So during the last phase of the late Calcolithic III, so around the 3600s BCE, Telbrock has extensive contact with the Uruk culture in the Alluvium. So we see lots of Uruk pottery mixed in with local styles. We have a quote from Joan Oates' 2005 article, and this is assuming that the Uruk culture represents ethnic Sumerians. Quote, Although Sumerians from the south are almost certainly present, Brock had not as yet become a southern colony, comparable with sites on the Euphrates such as Sheikh Hassan. End quote. So on the sides of many bowls and large jars, we see specific signs that repeat in patterns. Different signs are associated with different vessels, and we have over 100 examples on large jars alone. These signs probably represent something numerical, and we also see early proto-tablets, these are similar to proto-tablets in juice or gypsum plaster at Unug. One of these tablets only has a large number written on it. Based on the later Uruk numerical system, which it will share with the proto-Elamite numerical system, this number might be 3600. Joe notes again, this quote, conceivably represents some form of employment record. Certainly, mass-produced pottery of the types often interpreted as ration bowls, implying large workforces, appear already, end quote, in earlier levels. So we also see lots of stamp seals, which are a continuing tradition beginning in the pottery Neolithic north, and also, of course, found in the Uvaid south. But we also find the first cylinder seals, which will later become a hallmark of the Uruk culture. But because these cylinder seals are associated with an indigenous northern material culture, they were probably first developed here. Seal impressions reflect the power of institutions. We have over a thousand sealings, each reflecting a delivery to an institution of goods like beer, grain, flints, and manufactured items like textiles, among others. The stamped image often identifies the individual or group making the delivery, whether that's taxes and or gifts. This reflects growing institutional power over goods, labor, and time, and the need to associate particular transactions with particular people, which is an added layer of accountability in a bureaucracy. 
Also on seals, we see images of leaders shown fighting either snakes or lions, both of which have predecessors, for example, at Susa. The king versus lion archetype is a classic symbol of kingship until the first millennium BCE, and it first shows up at Tel Brock around 3700. Tokens are another pottery Neolithic tradition. They're mostly simple geometric shapes at this point. We'll see more complex designs later, but essentially these are small objects exchanged, probably as records of a particular transaction or as reminders of a promise, like an IOU for a later transaction. So obviously this is the first city and we have lots of people moving from smaller villages nearby to this major city of Tel Brock. Some chose to emigrate in search of better opportunity. Some may have been forced to by famine or natural disaster. And one thing we'll look at, especially in the context of later Uruk cities, is the possibility of military conquest bringing back prisoners of war and slaves. We remember from episode six, all of the health effects associated with living in a large, dense settlement. Cities have all the same problems as big towns, only on a bigger scale. So, you know, despite all these new professions, you know, specialized forms of production, lots of people living in the city are still farmers which means they're interacting with livestock on a daily basis. Even if their animals aren't sleeping inside the city, they're still bringing animals into the city for trade and tribute, which is a vector by which zoonotic diseases can spread between humans. Of course, people also have contact with lots of other people. So we have tens of thousands of people in the area. As we said, up to 24,000 people during this period. And of course, there are lots of shepherds, traders, worshippers, and so on passing through the city, possibly from elsewhere. So of course, sanitation is an issue. You know, we have a lot of humans and animals in a confined space and no understanding of germ theory. And they almost certainly have to store a lot of water, you know, both for drinking and for agriculture. So if you have standing drinking water lying around, it can get contaminated. If you have pools of stagnant water for farming, they can attract mosquitoes. In terms of food storage, city dwellers are disproportionately reliant on grain rations from a temple. So you know, if people have a day job in the city, they are not spending the majority of their time growing their own barley. And any storehouse is vulnerable to rats and mold. And if grain is all in one place, it's easier for the entire store to become contaminated. That's why we often see storage facilities with many small silos, so that if one of them is contaminated, the entire store won't be. In general, pre-modern cities don't reproduce their own population. In other words, without constant immigration, their population would shrink. And most of this is because of diseases spread among dense populations. So starting in the early 3000s, we see an aridification trend lasting about 2,000 years, leading to drier climate and less rain, and more highly seasonal conditions. So around this time, the lakes in the Arabian Peninsula and the Persian Gulf area dried up, creating a more similar climate to the one we see today. There were two peaks of aridification, and the one that we're looking at today happened around this time, the 3600s BCE, or the end of the late Chalcolithic III period. This is around the same time that we see more Uruk material appearing in Tel Brock, more on that later. So around this time, bodies of water are shrinking, soil is getting saltier, meaning there's less arable land. So people are moving where the soil is good, all of which is concentrating population, in the fewer places that are good for agriculture. You know, as people are farming more intensively in these smaller plots of good land, like I said, the soil is getting saltier, the water is evaporating faster. And in times of crop shortages, people might try to shorten the fallow period and plant more, which again will speed up all these processes. So from the late 4000s to the early 3000s, there was enough rain for dry agriculture to feed a population of about 20,000. But if the climate dried out, you know, they could use these more labor-intensive farming practices that I talked about, or move elsewhere, or fight. So we have three mass graves that show evidence of conflict, probably the result of some kind of violence during this time. One of these mass graves at Tel Majnuna, which is one of the satellite sites, has at least 54 corpses, maybe as many as several hundred. This grave is from the early, late Calculithic III period, so around 3900 BCE, both across space and time within the Mesopotamian world. The standard practice was to bury an entire person in a single grave not long after they died so that all of the bones will end up in the same place, arranged more or less the same way that they're arranged inside a living body. But in these mass graves, these bodies are in a state of partial disarticulation. In other words, what appears to have happened is that these people were lay exposed to the elements for a couple weeks to a couple months, so that they partially decomposed, after which these chunks of decaying person were transported to this pit, 
and laid in the single mass grave. So we do have all the bones from inside your torso, so the chests had not completely fallen apart. We have lots of loose arm and leg bones, but very few hands and feet. Animals may have carried around the feet and hands, especially if they were lying around in the wilderness and not in the city itself. We have no cut marks on these bones, so they were not intentionally dismembered. They appear to have decayed and then were collected later. All of these bodies show the same degree of partial disarticulation. So in other words, they all seem to have died around the same time and rotted for the same period of time. But we do have evidence of wounds, in other words, evidence of death by violence. In this pit, most bodies are from young adults, mostly aged 20 to 35, about two-thirds male, so largely people of fighting age. We do have some children ages 6 to 20, so this age distribution is different from what we normally see. So usually when we see a graveyard, most of the people there are babies and old people. In other words, people who die when their immune system is at its weakest. Similarly, in the case of epidemics, we see some babies and mostly old people die from those. This mass grave appears to have been followed by a burial feast, either to celebrate a victory or to mourn all these people. In just one part of the grave, we see 100 sheep and goats and about 25 cattle. These together would produce 6,200 kilograms of meat, or almost 7 imperial tons of meat. Given that we've only excavated part of the grave, there may have been over 300 animals in the entire grave, which would have produced about 23 tons of meat. Unlike the human bones, the animal bones were butchered and buried right away. We see consistent cut marks from butchers, as we expect to see on animals processed for meat. But among these animals, young cattle are three times as common as adults. So cattle reproduce and grow up very slowly. And because it's very rare to eat calves, not only is it less meat, but also you're giving up on all the potential meat that you would be able to get if you would allow that cow to grow to adulthood and then eat it. Also, it's extremely labor-intensive to raise cattle, and you want to make sure you get the most return on your investment and so on. This may have been symbolic, since all these young people are being buried. They may have sacrificed a bunch of young cattle to symbolize the people wasted before their prime. So we see another mass grave. This one is a little bit later in Lake Calculithic 3. We have similar pottery in both graves. In this one, we have at least 89 people here. But unlike the other grave, this one is mostly children and young adults, so under age 25. And also unlike the other grave, this one is two-thirds female. But similar to the other grave, these kids were apparently killed in some kind of conflict and then exposed to the elements for a while and then buried later. Here we see more extensive disarticulation, probably because the bodies had decayed for longer. So this might be reburial after a long period of time. In other words, this might be digging up bones from graves, not transporting chunks of corpse rotting in open air. In the second mass grave, we also see a narrower range of bones. So these are mostly long bones, like arm and leg bones. We do see some animal bite marks on the longer bones, which could indicate that they were lying out in the wilderness for a while. If not for the age range, we could say that this could be a routine cemetery cleanup. You know, if you need to build over a cemetery, but you want to be respectful to the bodies, you could gather up all of the bones of the decayed bodies and dump them in some other place, respectfully. But in that case, we would expect to see an age distribution similar to what we see in most cemeteries, you know, mostly babies and old people. So we don't really know what's going on here. So also at these mass graves, we see tools made from human bone, which is completely unique in Mesopotamia, like completely unique, like no other Mesopotamians did this. We see 42 tools made from human bones, 19 of which are mostly complete. These were mostly made from femurs and tibias several years after the person died. So the way you would make these is you would twist the bone to snap it in half, creating pointed ends on both halves where it breaks. This is done the same way on all of them. So this may have been a standardized practice or they may have all been created by the same person. Once you have a bone broken in half, you chip off the joint end, you know, the end of the bone that connects to other bones, leaving you with a cylindrical handle and a pointy end. And then, after this, people would even the shafts with the same tools used to chip stone tools. In other words, they're processing these as if they were processing stone tools. We have two standardized sizes of human bone tool. One is about 12 centimeters or 5 inches, and the other one is about 20 centimeters or 8 inches. Well-used bone tools end up polished from rubbing, ending up with a spatula shape. And also in this grave, we see chunks of skull that are also polished from rubbing. So probably what happened here is that bone tools were used to deflesh skulls. So these skull fragments might have been ones that were broken in the process, 
with the idea being that if they finished defleshing a skull, they would use it as a trophy elsewhere and not bury it in this mass grave. And this is completely different from what we see earlier in the Neolithic skull cult. So these are not being treated as venerated elders. These seem to be treated much more like disrespected dead to be used as war trophies. It's worth mentioning that human bone is not a great material for tools. It is structurally less strong than animal bone. The collagen breaks down over time, so the actual structure of the bone degrades, so it's not good for a tool. So use of human bone was probably symbolic, not practical. In other words, whatever they were doing to these people, they must have really, really, really hated them. So we have two more mass graves, one around 3700 BCE and another around 3600 BCE. In the second grave, we also have a bag-shaped pile of bones. In other words, you put a bag full of bones there, the bag decays, the bones are still there in a circle. The cause of this conflict is not clear. Given how it's placed within the city, this may have been a local battle. The size of Telbrock might have made an external attack unlikely. In other words, it's hard to imagine a one-hectare village deciding to launch an invasion of the biggest city in the world. So this may have been an internal conflict. These burials occurred during a period of rapid growth, stretching throughout the late Calcolithic III period, about 3900 to 3600. This is a period of increasing population and density and complexity, and at the same time, the beginning of an aridification event, putting lots of stress on society, possibly primarily via starvation. When you have much more people than there are resources, and the future appears extremely uncertain. Given other historical examples, these are the exact conditions under which corpse trophies happen. In terms of what weapons they would have used in warfare, we have evidence for copper spears and swords, but they were rare. Bows and arrows were more common, as well as slings, probably. Women and children are usually excluded from formal war campaigns between states, but in conflicts between unequal parties, women and children are often involved in fighting. It wouldn't be hard to think of modern guerrilla wars, in which women and children participate. So as I mentioned, this is the only place in the entirety of Mesopotamian history where people were making tools from human bones. As soon as we can tell the cultural values of Mesopotamia from the 2000s onwards, this is clearly desecration. It's not the respectful processing of ancestors' remains that we see across the Neolithic. You know, this is hateful destruction of other people's corpses. Also, we see a trash heap on top of these mass graves. All of this is an inversion of normal burial practice. So we see disarticulation and mixing individuals together, whereas, like I said, the most common form of burial in Mesopotamia is an adult buried intact in a single grave. The garbage heap erected on top of these mass graves might be related to the burial mounds mentioned in later records of warfare from Lagash, when the king of Lagash says that he defeated 3,600 soldiers and erected a burial mound on top of them. That inscription doesn't exactly explain what he means, but this might be a similar practice. This 2011 article by Augusta McMahon and colleagues says, quote, This disregard implies that the dead were enemies, conceptually different to those performing the burials, and considered unworthy of normal burial and the preservation of their individual identities, end quote. Anyway, that's that on Tel Brock. At the first flood of daylight, Gilgamesh wept for his friend. Enkidu, born to a gazelle and an onager, your parents, and you were brought up by donkeys and led to the pasture by beasts. So we're listening to Tablet 8 of the Epic of Gilgamesh translated by Sophus Hella. The backstory here is that Gilgamesh and Enkidu killed the Bull of Heaven, which was sent by the gods to punish them for a previous transgression. And to punish them for killing the Bull of Heaven, the gods killed Gilgamesh's friend and possibly a lover, Enkidu. And right now, Gilgamesh is mourning him. Enkidu, may the tracks of the cedar forest ceaselessly weep for you day and night. May the elders of Unuk, the sheepfold, the vast city weep for you. May the crowds who blessed our departure weep for you. May the peaks of hills and mountains weep for you. May grasslands wail like mothers for you. May boxwood, cypress, and cedar weep for you. The trees we crept through in our wrath. May the bear, hyena, leopard, cheetah, jackal, lion, aurochs, stag, ibex, beast of herd and the wild weep for you. May the plowman in his field weep for you, who will cherish your name in his work song. May the people of Unug, the sheepfold, the vast city weep for you, who will cherish your name. Now I too will weep for you. Hear me, young men, hear me. 
Hear me, elders of vast Unuk, hear me. I weep for my friend Enkidu, axe at my side, strength of my arm, sword in my belt, shield in my hand, my festival dress, my belt of joy. An evil wind rose and robbed me of you. Enkidu, you hounded mule, highlanded donkey, leopard of the wild. What sleep has seized you now? Come back, you do not hear me. But he did not turn his head. He touched Enkidu's heart. It beat no more. He veiled the face of his friend like a bride's. Like an eagle, he circled around his corpse. Like a lion, forced to abandon her cubs. He paced back and forth, before and behind him. He pulled out heaps of curly hair and cast off his clothes in disgust. At the first flood of daylight, Gilgamesh sent a call across the land. Smiths and stonecutters, coppersmiths and goldsmiths, jewelers, make a statue of my friend. So two things that I think are interesting here. In both Gilgamesh and the Iliad, our hero touches the chest of his companion, who could also be read as his lover. Finding no heartbeat, our hero realizes that the other man is truly dead, upon which our hero tears out his hair, and the text compares our hero's grief to that of a lion mourning its cubs. Pretty much the exact same scene shows up in the Iliad with Achilles and Patroclus, like down to the same metaphor. I mean, either the Iliad was directly created by someone who was familiar with the epic of Gilgamesh, or this entire scene, complete with the metaphor, was common enough in kind of the broader Near Eastern world that it made its way, you know, pretty much unchanged into the Iliad. And there's another Iliad parallel, because in this scene, each new day is introduced with a stock phrase. In Gilgamesh, it's the phrase which Sophistella translates, at the first flood of daylight. And then, of course, in Homer, it's when the child of morning, rosy-fingered dawn, appeared. Oh, and also the line in Gilgamesh here, he veiled the face of his friend like a bride's. That, to me, is interesting because at the very beginning, when Gilgamesh first meets Enkidu, Gilgamesh is trying to sleep with a new bride, as he had cruelly decided was his right as king. But Enkidu meets him at the bridal chamber and then fights him so that he doesn't sleep with the bride. So they first meet at the threshold of a bridal chamber. And then they have this friendship that, in the text, can be pretty easily read as a relationship. Then when Enkidu finally dies, Gilgamesh veils his face like a bride's. It's almost kind of like a marriage, but reverse in time. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think it's really interesting. But... The most famous part of the scene from Gilgamesh is not in Sophistella's translation, but it is in the Nancy Sundar's translation. It goes like this. The next day also, in the first light, Gilgamesh lamented. Seven days and seven nights he wept for Enkidu until the worm fastened on him. Only then he gave him up to the earth, for the Anunnaki, the judges, had seized him. Yeah, I, I was going to say, the fact that he refused to bury him until he was done grieving, I think is really interesting. It could also show a cultural difference that instead of kind of putting them in the ground right away, mm -hmm. for him, that was less important than his own personal connection to him. Oh, yeah. So Antigone buried Pleiades out of love, and Gilgamesh refused to bury Enkidu out of love. Out of love, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Another thing that I thought was interesting was, yeah, just as we do veil the dead, but then also at funerals in today in America, people can wear veils as a sign of grief, as the dead is veiled. I don't, I don't know. Do you know anything about that comparison? Um, maybe not necessarily in the bridal way, but at least in veils of grief and why that's a thing? I don't know. I don't know. The stereotype of widower wearing a black veil in grief. Yeah, I don't know where that comes from. But yeah, in that way, kind of, especially if it is a widow, she wears a veil to the marriage and also a veil to kind of close that. So I don't know if that is maybe mm, where it comes from. Interesting. interesting mm. as kind of a beginning and an end, white and black. Mm. That is worth looking into because the Middle Assyrian period, so like more or less right around the time that the Gilgamesh story that we're familiar with is written down, 
-hmm. is the first time that we have evidence in laws for the veiling tradition. But in that case, it's only a respectable wife of a household or whatever is allowed to veil. And like yeah. sex workers are not allowed to veil. Yeah. So the implication being that every self-respecting woman would want to veil and you have to have laws preventing other women from pretending, quote unquote, to be respectable. Yeah. I do wonder if that veiling throughout the marriage would also be tied into this or if there are some vestiges of that into Western Christian tradition with having the veils at weddings and also at funerals. Mm-hmm. 